I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm going to try quite hard to kind of suppress and disguise my incredible excitement at, uh, at getting to talk to Owen about uh, his book tonight. Um, I was just saying to Owen just before we came up here that uh, as soon as I saw the cover, the beautiful cover of this, of this book and found out that the title was Trans-Europe Express, I thought this is literally the book of my dreams. This is the book <laughs> I've wanted to read my entire life. Um, so... Um, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's also um, a very sad book, I think. Uh, and I want to talk to Owen somewhat about whether he thinks it's a sad book. Uh, and if so, in what ways it's sad and whether there are any kind of uh, grounds based on his extensive travels uh, to be kind of less sad, really, about the situation that we're in and the situation we might be faced with um, in Europe. So I guess I, I want to start really by asking you really um would you say this is a book about about the failure of everything we've come to regard as common sense uh, <laughs> in the last 40 or so years or come, uh, rather than regard as common sense we, we've been encouraged to regard as common sense in the last 40 years or so yeah although i suppose it's different common sense depending on where you're standing and and, and part of it is about the way that what's common sense in Hamburg can look enormously radical in Liverpool in terms of things like city planning. In terms of like where people think they stand politically, I think actually Liverpool's probably the more radical city. But in terms of like what the, what the city government does and what it's allowed to do, it's, uh, you know, it's very difficult to do anything really yeah. other than like go around the world selling it to property developers. Um, <laughs> so um, there was... But, but I, uh, so it sort of started off sort of being interested in the sort of European, sort of northern European common sense and this kind of mm. idea that I think a lot of people have that, that over there there was still this sort of surviving social democracy that was wonderful. And up to a point, this is true, but I, I sort of was sort of keen to point out, sort of find out where that point was. Right. Um, and sort of what, what, what the sort of neuralgic point was there. And I think there's a certain, sometimes it's smugness, <laughs> um, but sometimes it's a sort of belief that this is really the best we can possibly do, which mm. I think is um, sometimes depressing in its own way, although it was quite hard to find sort of recently built um, landscapes that were as bad as 
those in the UK anywhere outside of I think Russia to a degree. <laughs> and even Russia in the last couple of years has got a lot better. Um, so, yeah. And you're not, you're not just talking, obviously, you're not just talking in architectural terms, you're talking in terms of civic planning, mm, mm, mm. civic resources, what is made available to people to live their lives yeah. in, a, in, a, in a pleasant or productive or healthy. Uh, and, and they sort of intersect all the time in a way that could probably be quite sort of slippery. Um, it's probably, there's probably times when the reader would sort of notice that, that a sort of fact is followed by prejudice. And, and architecture and politics and city planning and so mm. forth. And these being, so so they, they, they kind of, yeah, they, 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 they sort of slip between each other quite a lot in the book um, in a way that mostly I, I stand by. Um, but I hope that readers will be able to tell the moments in which I'm stating a, a personal opinion and moments in which I'm arguing from science. Um, the stuff on Paris in particular has seems to have annoyed some people, but that's their problem. Um, but the... Um, so it sort of deals with the effect or lack of effect of city planning on, what, on the sort of ease of walking through a city or experiencing it or sort of just enjoying it as a, a, as a thing. And sometimes in a possibly touristic way and sometimes simply in terms of a sort of what a place would be like to live in. And, yeah. the, kind of the, the, and the, the, the role that things like housing and mobility and, and, and you know, just simply the design of streets works within that. With the exception of London, this is a thing that's done appallingly badly in Britain. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever had the misfortune of trying to cross from one end of Leeds to the other on public transport, yeah. and you know, Leeds is a big city. Where it's a city of like about, about three quarters of a million people. Um, you know, in terms of its size, its history, its architecture, its wealth, it should have a, it should have a metro. Yeah. And it literally like, you know, went to the Treasury under Gordon Brown to ask for a tram and was yeah. refused. Yeah. So things like this, which are just ludicrous. A city that's like, it's twinned with Lille, which is three, which is three times smaller and has a metro and a tram. Yeah. And just little things like that. But then you sort of realize that these sort of places that, that would seem to be working so much better that that perception is not one that they particularly have a lot yeah. of the time, um, which sometimes is just moaning. I mean, the amount of times I've spent kind of talking to Germans who don't seem to understand quite how bad British public transport is. Mm -hmm. I, rem I remember someone saying, um, yes, well, you know, um, you, it, it may be true that the, that the Stadtbahn in Dusseldorf, you know, runs all night, but the one in Essen stops at midnight. I was like, mate, if you think that, that the, the equivalent of Essen would have a U-Bahn, you know, in, in, in Britain, you know, if you had suggested it, they would laugh you out of town. So... Um, a lot of it is, is about that and, and about that kind of fact that the places, places that seem to work better don't seem any happier about, about, about their politics. And yeah. there's a sort of similar shift to the political right and to a kind of paranoid nativism, even in places like, like Vienna, which are full of the things that I suppose someone who regarded themselves as a social democrat in Britain would desperately want. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they still have all of their social housing and it's yeah. really, still really good. Yeah. You know, they, they, they have, you know, um, in a city the size of Birmingham, they have like, you know, incredibly extensive public transport network. You know, the, uh, all of these sorts of things that, you know, the, the pleasure of walking around the streets there is vastly higher than that of a city of the same size in Britain. And yet, I mean, maybe not in Vienna as much as in other cities in Austria, but there's, you know, a huge shift to you know, a party literally founded by SS officers. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of things you can say about UKIP, but at least it's not that. Um, <laughs> so the sort of strange thing of finding that 
that these differences actually seems to make fairly little difference. People's politics was a thing was an unpleasant surprise. I, I guess that's what I mean, really, about about you know my takeaway emotion from mm. from reading the book. What was sadness, really, of understanding? And I think you interrogate this to a very very um, you know emotionally powerful degree the extent to which we you know we i don't know 50 i don't know wherever it was 51.9 percent of you know britain voted to leave this um organization that appeared to be to some people to, to its more vociferous defenders to you know to enable things like fabulous public transport mm -hmm. and better mm -hmm. public uh, you know, better better public resources, and you know the idea of cooperation and so on, and yet, even having those things doesn't prevent the same kind of drift towards resentment and extreme uh, extreme disillusionment. Yeah. I mean, what what was the place? Was there one single place that seemed to kind of sum up the grimness of the? current European political situation to you more better than any other place? There was originally a chapter on Budapest which I cut for almost exactly this reason because right. it was just so relentlessly negative. Right. I think. What's in this book? <laughs> um, you see, you've been to so many places you can't even remember. <laughs> There's very, very few places that I regard as bleak as such. Um, although Madrid comes close. Skopje, actually. Um, oh, Skopje is a Skopje, fabulous example. Jesus Christ! Can I can I just tell 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 the audience that the, the, the what what Owen is but Owen there's loads of really really good pictures also in in the book as well as really good writing. But but the one kind of the one picture I wish I'd never seen, but unfortunately you put it in your book, so I'll never be able to unsee it. Uh, is a billboard um, along a roadside in um, in Skopje. It's not a roadside. That's that's the central railway station. Oh my god! Okay, that makes it even worse. <laughs> okay, railway station billboard uh, written in English. Uh, it's a picture of a cut-off, de semi-decapitated woman um, straining out of a very small bikini, and it's an advert for a Macedonian ra um, radio station. And then written in English next to it, really big hits, and that kind of. And that kind of, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you say in the book yourself that, that, that Macedonia is a place that had absolutely wonderful, wonderful um, uh, modernist architecture from the 1960s after, after a very extensive earthquake in the 60s. And cooperatively, not, not, just, not just European designers, oh. but, but, but designers and architects from around the world and governments from around the world all basically donated a designer, didn't they? Yeah. Or donated yeah. a design yeah. to rebuild Skopje. A lot of it was very, very beautiful. But Skopje uh, decided in its infinite wisdom to, to Europeanize itself by rebuilding a lot of the, is it the old Skopje old town? Well, one of the buildings, which was the National Theatre, um, was an original building. And the rest were sort of variations on a historical theme. Right. But they were buildings that had never actually been there. So they started with a real reconstruction and then had kind of fake real reconstructions. Well, so they started with a real fake and then had fake fakes. So how many, how many posts of postmodernism is that? <laughs> seven to, yeah. to the seventeenth. It's tragic that to Jean, the power of seven. Yeah. Postmodernism to the power of seventeen. It's, it's Sean Baudrillard like never got to like go around there in a gold lame jacket, like or go around there dressed as Alexander the Great. Um, the story with that actually is that um, 
antiquitization. So they were kind of like we're the capital of Macedonia, and Macedonia is obviously you know the 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 heart of the Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great and so forth. But we don't all of our actual historical monuments, at least in Skopje, come from the Ottoman Empire. Right. which we associate with the Albanians, who make up about a third of the city. Right. And it's literally like on the, other, on the other side of the river. And it never, I mean, it wasn't caught up in the wars in the early 90s, but it had been tense at various points. And there was a very, very brief war at one point. You know, in order to kind of create that, and also in order to kind of like prove to Greece that it really, really was Macedonia, um, that they then sort of built all of these kind of ideas of the kind of antique city that it never actually was, which then crowd out both the modernist city built in the 60s, but also built very deliberately to crowd out the minarets of the real historic city. Right. So as well as sort of being obscurantist, it was also sort of fairly kind of racist. Yeah. So it was, but, and the, 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 there was a, it was the guy behind it, who was the leader of the then ruling party, has just been jailed for two years. For and building really bad buildings. Partly for building really bad buildings, right. but also for like the amount of kickbacks he got when he was doing it. Right. Um, like they had a they had a revolt there a few years ago. No, no, I think last year actually, um, where lots of one of the major kind of things was people kind of throwing paint at these new buildings and monuments. Right. And the new government that was recently elected there, um, very narrowly, in fact, um, has started to take some of these things down. Right. Um, but it was it, the thing. What kind of interested me in a bit, and it was it was a sort of a weird sort of refracted. It's a Disney version of what, of what had happened in the 18th and 19th century. What happened to Edinburgh or St. Petersburg when they tried to make themselves look like ancient Greece. Mm. Or what happened to Athens when it tried to make itself look like ancient Greece. Because, <laughs> of course, Athens had been an Ottoman city at that point for hundreds of years. Yeah. And most of those, those monuments were being used for completely other things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a great story in Barry Bugdahl's book about 18th century architecture about, like, the, the Scottish architect James Athenian Stuart, like going around doing these kind of drawings of, of, the, of the great monuments of, of Athens and paying someone to demolish their house. Like your house is in the way of the Temple of Olympian Zeus. I can give you loads of cash if you'll let me demolish your house so I can draw this, this useless colonnade that's behind it. Um, and then, you know, then the kind of process in the 19th century under first German and then Greek architects of sort of trying to make it look like the city that it hadn't been at that point for about 2,000 years. Yeah. And so Skopje was doing that. It was trying to do that. It was just trying to do it in a completely different historical context <laughs> and with far, far less good architects. Yeah. Um, and the result was just horrible. But, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, at some point it will be a sort of capital of kitsch and if he's still alive, Jonathan Meads will make a program about it. <laughs> and, you know, like, like if... Like, there was a bit, there was a bit where... Um, as the Wizz Air plane that I took there um, touched down, there was a group of lads and the, the, the seats in front, and one of them was just like, here we are, Alexander the Great Airport. And they, they were literally there to see the crap, um, which um, was kind of, you know, which, which for people in Skopje that I spoke to, and it's pretty much the only chapter where I spoke to lots of people because I thought the risk of like being a, being a twat here is quite high. Yeah. Like the risk of just like, getting you know, it all wrong. Yeah, yeah, of yeah, going yeah, in and yeah. giving a place a kicking without giving it a fair hearing. Uh, and, and yeah, the people there were furious, absolutely furious about what was happening. Mm. And the idea that, you know, people were like going there for a wizard flight for 30 quid to like go there and laugh at their city yeah. was really not something they were happy about. No, no. Completely unsurprisingly, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it's that sort of thing, you know, it, it, it's that sort of attempt at, you know, as you say, you know, antique, antiqui 
Antiquita. Uh, what did you say? Antiquitization. Antiquitization. I don't know what that is in Macedonian. But, and you yeah. and you know, sort of in quotes, Europeanization. Yeah. It, it it just what what you sort of really get to, to to the heart of in the book is just the you can't look at places, you can't look at buildings, and you know, and laugh at them or enjoy them or or anything without understanding the context in which they were put there, and. Europe itself is such a con the, the, the sort of the idea that we have of Europe now that we're attempting to leave in Britain, the idea of Europe that fascist parties in Europe are trying to you know are trying to uh, big up or sell to people. Uh, all of these ideas of Europe are, are incredibly recent and incredibly constructed and incredibly they're sort of like the Casey Hopkins version of Europe, aren't they? And did you see the Katie Hopkins thing today about St. Petersburg? No. Oh, oh, Katie Hopkins is in St. Petersburg at the moment? Why? I don't know. And I, I, I to usually, be a fascist. Yeah, I mean, usually she doesn't like enter my, my, my consciousness, but it, Twitter is Twitter. And it like turned up, and it, she was basically saying something like, you know, here, it's wonderful to be in St. Petersburg, um, where there's none of that multiculturalism. Hashtag Putin rocks. Uh, and like, aside from the fact that like Russia has like the biggest Muslim population in Europe, mm -hmm. um, has like hundred different languages, and that literally in the centre of Saint Petersburg there's a giant mosque. Yeah. Without wanting to be sort of Timothy Snyder about it, it was kind of like a certain propaganda is sort of working. Yeah. The sort of idea that there are these kind of you know that that there are these places like Hungary and Russia, um, I think pretty soon Italy, mm. um, which are you know the kind of the, the heartlands of Christian civilization that are resisting the hordes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But, I mean, honestly, to go to, like, Russia and find that, like, you know, just, it, it's possible to, like, Google Chechnya. You know, it's, like, some really, really obvious, really, really obvious things. Like, the biggest mosques in, in Europe are, are, are not counting those in Istanbul. They're in Russia. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, it's a mad thing to think, but it, it's, it's a certain sort of, like, political alignment yeah. that I think she is part of and the elements of the Russian government are part of and the elements of the kind of far right or sort of populist right parties are, are part of. And her seeing that in the architecture of St. Petersburg has kind of confirmed all of my worst fears, really. Yeah, well, it's a kind of Lord Haw-Haw, isn't yeah. it? She's like the Lord Haw-Haw of Twitter or whatever, isn't she? You know? <laughs> but Will she meet the same sticky end? Wow, yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of the book, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but at the very beginning of the book, you say that in the very beginning of the introduction, you say you went to Southampton, where, where you're from, just after the referendum, and you ended up in a massive row with your mum because you'd voted Remain and your mum had voted Leave. And you say that essentially, for irrational, you know, you regard it as quite irrational reasons, but the essential reason that you voted Remain was architectural. And is it because you see architecture as being a vessel for making, a vessel for making sure or hoping that we don't forget? Partly, and partly it was a, a, a thing about, about sort of EU structural funds in a way. <laughs> right, um, yeah, yeah. But, but, but also, but not, and, and I suppose not so much about how they're spent in Britain, but especially how they're spent in Eastern Europe. I mean, when I started writing this in, in 2015, it was quite soon after, at the time I was spending lots of time in Poland. And every time you see a housing estate that's been renovated, every time you see a street that's been paved properly, every time you see a tram, every time you see a metro train, 
It has a little sign on it saying this was funded by the EU infrastructure budget. Yeah. Partly that brings up the question of like why we don't have any of those things, or why the places that have Objective One money, like like Liverpool, like Cornwall, like South Yorkshire, don't have those things. Yeah. And um, um, you know the, the kind of what that money was actually put for here is as a. I'd love to see someone sort of do a kind of anatomy of, of, of where it was actually spent. So partly it was just like, you know, you go to places in the EU and cities are better, mm. which they, I think, this is like one of my least controversial opinions, really. <laughs> and also that they had been a restraint in some places on the kind of inclination of their elites to destroy all of the public sector. Yeah. The kind of more I got into writing the book and the more I sort of traveled and the more I, I, I read, the more I decided my mum was probably right, although I've not told her this yet, insofar as there was, there's always a trade-off. And so with the Polish example, you can say, yes, they know that, the, 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 you know, that like, if there's a tram in Radom or Olsztyn, it's probably you know, funded by the EU. But at the same time, if there's a factory in Radom or Olsztyn, it's probably owned by a German company. Yeah. Um, and these are inextricably linked, and people see them mm. as linked. Um, there was always that thing when people were kind of going to, to Cornwall or South Wales and going, but aren't you worried about the fact that all your Objective One money is going to go? That, that, that they felt it was kind of a sop. Yeah, you know, the sort of feeling of charity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of course, the big example of that, because Eastern Europe is, I think, by and large, you know, I mean, people here can sort of talk about the, the things that, that happened to get them into the EU. They, mm -hmm. all, they all went through very, very harsh austerity to get into the EU. Yeah. But yeah. after they got in, they were then the recipients of massive quantities of structural funds. Um, but the place, so the place where you can see the problem isn't Eastern Europe, but Southern Europe. Right. Um, Greece being the obvious example. Mm -hmm. um, but also the kind of way that Spain and Italy have been treated, the way that Cyprus was treated. That, that, that there's, the relations have become increasingly just, I mean, in the case of Greece, quite openly colonial. And that is almost impossible to defend. And my kind of inclination was to a sort of, idea of, you know, the sort of Varoufakis thing of like, oh, we can have this better Europe and we'll all get, get together and make the EU work. Mm. But it's a very, very hard sell politically. It's a very, very hard thing to argue for. It's very hard to imagine how that would actually work. What sort of, what, what sort of agreement would have to happen for that to actually take place? I remember Adam Tooze having this idea that, you know, if the SPD came back into power and they got into coalition with the Greens and then with the left party, then mm. they would stop giving Greece a kicking. And I, I, I don't think the SPD give a toss. You know, I mean, they were they were in the they were in the coalition that gave Greece that kicking, and I don't yeah. think anyone in the anyone there gives the slightest damn about it. You know, that 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 what happens to Southern Europe is part of what makes Germany such a massive industrial power. Yeah, you know, that one is relies on the other. So I'm not saying that I've gone Lexit, but I'm kind of thinking that at least in the short term, it's probably more practical to kind of try and do something outside of it. <laughs> At the risk of never being able to go back or never being able to... I don't know. ...sort of go back within that, you know, the more, po you know, the more positive aspects, yeah. the potentially more positive aspects of a, you know, a properly social democratic EU. But I mean, really what you're saying and what you're arguing in the book is, 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 is such a thing as a properly social democratic Europe, a properly social democratic EU, even actually possible? I mean, it exists. But the thing is that it exists in um, it exists in Germany, and it exists in France. Although Macron is keen to get rid of that as soon as possible, it exists in the Netherlands, it exists in Belgium, and it exists in Scandinavia. 
which is kind of where it's always existed. No, exactly. And no, as soon as point. you get out of that, yeah. the EU is something quite different, yeah. which I think has been positive to the East and negative to the South, and in Britain, very, very mixed, but mostly positive by and large. That, that, so that block still has a kind of a social democracy of sorts, and then you know, will enforce privatization yeah. on Greece, for instance. You know, that one of the things that, 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 that came with us as a settlement on, in, in, in Greece was massive privatization of its infrastructure, yeah. enforced by a country, Germany, which has largely nationalized infrastructure. Yeah. So it was just the, the, sort of, the sort of gross hypocrisy of, a sort of, of, of something that was sort of social democracy for one part and enforcing well, exactly. liberalism for the rest. Yeah, exactly. So, I, of course, I, I, you know, I, I, ideally, I would, I, I would like to think that that, that that thing could be reformed in such, in, in such a way that you could have a, a pan-European social democracy. But um, I'm not entirely sure if Arafakis is speaking towards a really the thing that's going to bring that about. I don't know. It, it just reminds me of um, when I was doing my A-level politics. It just reminded me of um, we were all, when we first started doing our A-level politics, we were all invited to um, give our... Give a basically yes no opinion on the EU. This was 1992, <laughs> I suppose the year of the Maastricht Treaty, so it was relevant at the time. But it was kind of the EU. The EU is a fantastic way for uh, for the countries uh, for the formerly warring countries of Western Europe to stop having wars together through through free trade. Versus yeah. uh, the the EU is just a capitalist club. Therefore, therefore, we should leave it. And it's funny, I genuinely never thought of the idea. And this is obviously the idea that, that, that you, your mum your had, always, had always adhered to and that she carried that through with her vote was that the EU is nothing but a capitalist club mm. and Germany's actions towards Greece just exemplified, yeah. just exemplified yeah. that. I mean, I, I, I really like Perry Anderson's book on the EU, or rather the, the very long introduction to Perry Anderson's book on the EU, because the rest of it is sort of, like Perry Anderson's books, can be a, a little bit capricious. Um, but he's very good on the infrastructure of the EU and the way that it does come from both. Mm -hmm. That it is, on the one hand, a sort of trade block that comes from like German Christian democracy yeah. um, that's quite cynical in some ways. And it does also come out of this kind of you know, utopian Hegelian idea of sort of Europe coming together and there being this kind of borderless space and so forth. And you know, they're, they're both a, a, a part of the idea from the start. Um, so, I mean, without wanting to be rude to my mum, but she's in Southampton and I'm here. Um, I mean, her <laughs> politics haven't changed since 1974. And, and you she's know, not going to listen to the podcast. She's not going to listen to the podcast. She doesn't <laughs> read the books. Um, so she was like, um, so, you know, she was genuinely like, I, this is how I voted in the referendum in the mid-70s. And this is how I'm going to vote now. Because mm -hmm. it's if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Not changed. And Thatcher's opinion did change. And that's one of the things that was, you know, made the Tory party kind of fall apart in, in the early 90s in the, in, in the way that it did, um, is the fact that Thatcher and people like her on the Tory right campaigned for the European Union in the 1970s and for joining the European Union, European Union in the 1970s. And then in the, in the early 1990s, because of the fact the Maastricht Treaty still had things in it that had come from the pressure of trade unions and the social democratic parties like the, the social chapter and so forth, that she had then decided that it, that, that it was quite a malign and quite socialistic institution. Mm-hmm. And precisely because of the fact that it reflected, to some degree, the strength of the left in the rest of Europe in the 1980s. The fact that nowhere else in Europe had undergone what Britain had undergone. Yeah. You know, other places elsewhere in the world were going through it. You know, um, you know, the US, Chile, Australia, New Zealand were having it. But, it, you know, Thatcherism had not, doesn't, didn't really get to, say, Germany until very, very, very late and hasn't mm. really got there now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I suppose that's the thing. Like, for the right, their, their idea of what the EU has become more, they've become more and more hostile to it. And I think that was, that, that's interesting. And I think that suggests that it's maybe not as static an institution no. as we might think it is. So at the moment, it doesn't look good. No. Yeah. But, I mean, to, to, to come back to Britain and that you... you, you in the introduction, you, you talk about Southampton and its awful Ocean Village, is it? Ocean it is Village. Ocean Village. Ocean Village and the uh, Docklands in Dublin when you visit Ireland and also at the end you visit Hull. But have come away with a much a much more positive opinion of Hull than of Southampton. Yeah. But but to sort of look at look at all these places in Britain, places that we know have such little civic merit in comparison with the civic merit that they might have once had and the civic merit that they could have and the civic civic merit that they could have had after all that eu spending yeah yeah you know does it make you want to move no i mean it probably should but (laughs) i i i mean the closest i ever got to moving to anywhere else in europe was um nearly moving to poland when my rent got hiked um, and that didn't happen because um, I signed an advance for a book instead. <laughs> I suppose what I wanted to work out was where the divergence had happened in order to kind of understand, you know, how did we get into this particular situation with the idea of like, and then how can you get yourself out of it? Mm-hmm. So, and to a large degree, 
in every respect other than the property development, London has gone further towards building a European city than anywhere else in Britain by a long chalk. You know, people in London complaining about public transport is hilarious to anyone in the rest of the country. You know, mm -hmm. it, in, and hilarious and insulting. But also the thing that you, you get quite a lot, and I ramble if I, if I get too caught in this, but you know, that I, 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 I found, at least when talking to, to, to Brummies, uh, I'm, I, I, obviously you're an exception, but when you even say, you know, every city the size of Birmingham elsewhere in Europe has a metro. We don't need a metro. We've got the buses. You know, there's this kind of like, why would we, why would we want a metro? Us, little us. Mm. We're just like a village. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to, kind of, the, 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 the kind of moment where I wanted to work out what had happened was mainly in the last section of the book, which is about the North Sea and about cities that border the North Sea. Yeah. And particularly by comparing Hull and the Netherlands, partly because of the fact that it's quite Dutch. And they face each other. And they yeah, face yeah. each other. And at the time, it was the, cap the capital of culture thing was happening. And they had like a whole sort of exhibition about like Rembrandt in Hull. And like, don't laugh. He was there. Um, and like, you know, and, and pictures of Rotterdam next to pictures of Hull in the mm -hmm. 17th century. When they look exactly the same, because yeah. they pretty much were. Hull was in there partly because of the fact that Southampton is a really easy target. Mm. Like, even by the standards of British cities, like what Southampton has done with its port and with its riverside is particularly bad. Mm -hmm. In general, southern cities outside of London, and to a certain degree Bristol, have made a terrible, terrible hash of themselves. Mm. So like in Hull, for instance, the point where it meets the Humber, where it meets the estuary, and where it actually meets the, the River Hull, has actually been pretty well done, by mm. and large. Far better than in Southampton. And also that kind of economic success is not the measure either. Yeah. That Hull actually, with a few really horrible exceptions, has been pretty good as a, as a custodian of its own architecture and a custodian of its own landscape. Whereas Southampton, which is far richer, despite being about the same size and similar history, you know, has done terrible, terrible things, partly because there was so much money sloshing into it. Yeah. But the, 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 the main thing was fairly unsurprisingly, I mean, it's not, not giving much away here, was the 80s. That the 80s seemed to be the point at which there was a reaction against modernism everywhere, you know, a reaction everywhere against this kind of idea of like blocks in space and so forth and abstraction. And, and that happened across the board. But the reaction taking the specific form of anything other than a cul-de-sac of totalitarianism <laughs> only happened to Anglo-Saxon countries. Right. Um, yeah. Happened to Ireland as well and happened to the US as well and happened to Australia as well. But it didn't happen to Sweden, didn't happen to France, didn't happen to the Netherlands. And so when they reacted to modernism, they went towards a sort of, a sort of version of the 19th century city, of sort of streets and cafes and so forth. And that introversion combined with the enormous dominance of the car that happened, there was this very much a sort of idea in a lot of the rest of Europe that the kind of, that the privileges that were given to the car in the 1960s should be reversed. Yeah. And that happened, that's happened in Britain too, but over a much, much longer period, and very little has actually been done about it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Whereas a huge amount was done to redress this yeah. in, in, in a lot of the rest of the continent. And also, in some places, they'd combined all of that with building public transport. If you yeah. look at post-war Germany, you know, they were building flyovers and autobahns all over the place, but were also building metros and S-bahns. So, so mostly, it's, but mostly it's, a, it's an 80s thing, that something happens in the 80s, lots of which we know about, which is Thatcherism and neoliberalism. But another thing we don't know about as well, which is a sort of sudden fear of cities, and a sudden fear of urbanism, 
that happens across the board in Britain, on every part of the political spectrum. You can see it in the houses that Liverpool built, uh, that, 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 when, when Militant were in power in Liverpool. You can see it in Coin Street until Coin Street starts getting good in the late 90s. You can, you know, that everywhere there's this idea that everything must be low density and be based on cul-de-sacs and be cosy and also be based on where you can park your car. Mm -hmm. And that, that thing and how that happens and how that's never really left us is a big facet of the book, really. And yet you visit a suburb of Stockholm called mm -hmm. Husby. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a you know, very, very Scandinavian version of... Is it high density, or would you describe it as low density, be, of terraced yeah, housing yeah. that isn't quite the Brookside model yeah. that, that Militant underwent in, in, in Liverpool, but is still uh, single-family homes, very, very verdant, mm, very, very mm, nice-looking, mm, mm. uh, not unlike, as you point out, the, the Eric Lyons spam... Spam? Not spam. Spam, spam houses. <laughs> spam houses in Blackheath. Um, and Kent. Um, and yet what you point out is, is another absolutely key thing in the book, which is that improving and to some extent equalising environmental conditions for people does not automatically in and of itself lead to equality in a Europe that has become increasingly racist ultimately in the face of, in the face of demographic change in the face of, of geopolitical change, in the face of climate change as much as anything else. Mm, yeah. But uh, in Husby, in Stockholm, as a, a friend of Owen points out in the book, um, says that uh, Stockholm is the most segregated by class and race city in the whole of Europe, and yet its slums, what Owen's friend describes as slums, are better maintained than Hampstead. And, oh, yeah. and, and also, you say you got some beef about Paris. I mean, be, uh, be, Paris is another <laughs> example Paris. of the built, uh, you know, a, a racist built environment and, and classist <coughs> and classist built environment. You know, unusually, I think, possibly expressed partly through its public transport, in the sense that the RER is slow. It goes out for miles and miles and miles. It goes out beyond the outer ring road. And clean up. Yeah, it's yucky. It's yucky. And it takes 90 minutes to get from one end of the RER into the centre of Paris, whereas the metro just whizzes you around, newer trains and so on. And it's generally, it's generally for the posher, whiter people within the inner ring road. Yeah. I mean, the Stockholm one was really difficult to write because of the fact that um, there's almost a sort of little industry of people sort of going to Sweden and going, look, this proves social democracy doesn't work. Mm. Um, that, that weird Yorkshireman, what's his name? Um, Paul something, he's on Infowars. Do you know the one I mean? He's, he's like one of those, he's an alt-right personality. Um, and he had this whole thing of like, the suburbs of Stockholm. <laughs> you know, you Just will... like Donald Trump, Donald yeah. Trump said that. But like, <laughs> Paul Thomas Watson, I think he's called. And of course, they, you know, around the time the book was being written, they were rioting. Yeah. And they don't look like the Paris suburbs. You know, Paris suburbs, I mean, you know, obviously I like horrible architecture, but like, you know, the, the Paris suburbs are pretty imposing. Mm. Whereas the suburbs of Stockholm are lovely. Mm -hmm. They are so nice, out outrageously nice. Like Husby, people were talking about Husby, it's like, oh, Husby's one of the worst. Like, Jesus Christ, you guys need to get out more. <laughs> um, you know, um, but it's real. And what's real there, I think, is, is, is much more a question of, Something about, it was something about the kind of universalism of the Swedish welfare state. And one of the things that made the Swedish welfare state work so well 
was the fact that it was totally universal. So all of the Swedish middle class bought into it as well because they knew they got really, really good services out of it. Mm -hmm. They knew the schools were good and the housing was good. And you know, the, the, the whole kind of package was seductive. And that's changed a bit in the last 10 years, but it's still sort of the case to a degree. So there's this idea that, that everyone has this thing, which leaves no room for something like, you know, to use an obvious sort of Americanism, affirmative action, mm -hmm. because it's all on the same level. Yeah. So your, your new luxury flats in Sweden are being built by the same housing associations that own Husby, because Sweden doesn't actually have social housing. Right. Social housing is for the poor. Right. Social housing is for people that can't afford market housing. So, so you know, there's a system whereby, I mean, there is private housing in Sweden, of course, but a huge amount of the housing is, you know, owned by these usually kind of trade union and social democratic attached building societies and the housing associations who just charge different rents. So you'll be renting from what in Britain would be considered a social housing provider mm -hmm. and in Sweden is just considered a housing provider. Right. You know, to live in like the new wonderful Riverside housing estate at Hammerby, you'll be paying four times as much as you will to be living in Husby, which right. of course means that everyone who lives in Hammerby tends to be Caucasian. Right. And everyone who lives in Husby, by and large, tends to be not, unless they've lived there all their life. It's created in a much more subtle way than a lot of other places. And there's great resistance to actually, like, probably the way you'd be able to, you know, that the, 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 the way she had sought something like that would all be about changing the way the Swedish welfare state works in such a way that you do actually privilege groups that are currently underprivileged, yeah. which there's huge resistance to. But it's an interesting problem to have and quite a different problem to the one that everywhere else has. You know, there is a shift to the right everywhere that's been happening. There has been a dismantlement of the welfare state, but it's happening in very different ways in, very diff in, in, in other places. And pretty much everywhere it's happening much, much more slowly, which also means it's a lot more insidious. Yeah. Um, and it also means it's much harder for an English person to notice. Right. So I would kind of go to like Hamburg or, or Stockholm or, or Vienna and be like, well, what's your problem? Yeah. You have all the things I want mm. and can't get. They were kind of right when they were talking about, yes, but it's all being whittled down. But, and, and, but I couldn't help but kind of go, you know, you need to go to Manchester for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You need to go on the Metrolink. Yeah. You need to go to Piccadilly Gardens and look yeah. at the piss wall. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, I digress. So I guess to sum up, really, you're talking about you're talking about Europe as an incredibly contradictory place, an incredibly complicated place that, through time, has experienced. You know, just just the continent has, has experienced innumerable changes, innumerable changes and shifts in population. <laughs> that has been expressed through the architecture, some of which still exists, some of which no longer exists, and a lot of which, as you point out, uh, in places like Trieste, still exists, but is conveniently overlooked in order to try and paint a picture of, 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 of the place that, 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 doesn't correspond, that doesn't correspond with its history. In, in that sense, can, can somewhere as contradictory and as, as multifaceted and as different and as always changing as Europe hold together? Is it, is it stupid to expect it ever to be able to hold together for long periods of time? Uh, no, because it's also really small. <laughs> and I mean, this isn't, I'm not trying to, that's not something deliberately naive. You know, I mean, it is smaller than China. It is smaller than Russia. You know, mm. it's... Smaller than Canada, although obviously a lot more people live in it than Canada. <laughs> you know, like, it's sort of weird that something that you can, you know, if you get a train, an imaginary train from Porto to, to, to 
Moscow, you know, you could make it in probably on a fast train. You could make it without having to go to sleep. <laughs> you know, you can you, you can get from one end to the other quite easily, especially now. So it makes very little sense for this particular sort of appendage at the end of Asia to like be run as like fifty different states all at loggerheads of each other. And on that level, I'm sort of instinctively pro EU as a thing because it just seems geographically sensible. It seems absurd to treat this thing otherwise. It's sort of after that that things get complicated. Yeah. That's a good place to end, I think. <laughs> if you look at the plans of the suburban sprawl being built on greenfield sites outside every town in England, you find about half the land area is taken up with roads and garages and parking spaces. The front page of today's Birmingham Post has a visionary plan for the black country, a ring motorway for the black country of its own. The car cellularizes society and privatizes public space. You've touched on it already, Owen. Would you like to say a little more about how we can possibly get away from being ruled more in the interest of the car than the interest of people? The really, really obvious example is build public transport. I mean, I think one of the reasons why the referendum that Manchester had about a congestion charge, you know, the reason why that failed, I think, I think was because people in Manchester were so wedded to their cars. Car ownership in Manchester isn't that high. It isn't necessarily higher than in, say, Munich. It's because Manchester has terrible public transport. So people were being asked to leave a, public, form, of public, a form of transport that worked for them for something that didn't really exist. Whereas the reason it works in London is because of the fact that, I mean, by and large, you'd have to be stupid to drive in London. You know, the, the alternatives to driving are so much better um, that it's really sort of either sort of ego or necessity that would, that would make you do it. And that's not the case in everywhere else. So you have to start with public transport. It has to actually start with going, why not take the tram that we've just built? Why not take the metro that we've just built? Why not use the cycle path that we've just built? Because in most, most places outside London, those things don't exist. And when they do exist, like the Sheffield tram or the Birmingham tram, they're not much cop. So that's part of it, I think. There has to be an alternative. The actual ownership of cars and kind of car use isn't necessarily that... Well, the ownership of cars as opposed to car use in Britain isn't actually that much higher than most other European countries. In the same way that like, the amount of people that rent isn't, and the amount of people that own isn't actually that different to most other European countries. It's a country that's run in the interest of people that own property and, and drive cars. But the amount of people that own property and drive cars isn't actually higher than in Denmark. It's just that we, you know, it's been decided that they are the people that matter. And that's the problem. So political decisions are yeah. always skewed in that direction, which makes, yeah, like you say. I mean, the Metrolink, for, for, an, ex for an example, appears from the outside to be quite good until you actually, until you actually have to use it. Yeah. By which point, it. it's expensive, it's very, very slow. Yeah, yeah changing it and it doesn't go to many of the places that you would actually need it to go to yeah. Yeah. the cities that you went to which uh, are there any that seem to be looking after their 20th century architecture in a good way that we would yeah absolutely seeing? absolutely this is the thing that britain does much better than it used to actually i think that's that's been has moved on a lot in the last five years in particular I would say pretty much everywhere looks after it well apart from Russia. And even, again, in sort of Russia outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, where they do look after them now. I think there was a sort of nadir 
in the 90s of those places, of that sort of reputation. And Berlin did things that I don't think Berlin would ever do now, like demolishing the Palestinian Republic. Like, that was, I mean, that was a decision made against the wishes of lots of Berliners anyway. But I think now it would simply not be made. And I'm building a kind of rather Skopje-esque replica of the palace there. You know, that, that, that wouldn't happen now, I don't think. I think everywhere there's been a sort of a shift towards appreciation of that, which is just the passage of time and fashion, I think, by and large. What interests me quite a lot in a lot of Eastern Europe is that they're actually quite good at conserving their mass housing and not covering it with stuff that goes on fire. But, you know, the, 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 there's been a very large and EU-funded program of renovating panel housing in Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Hungary, which has been good. And this is housing that for years people were like, this is the worst housing that's ever been built ever. And it must be demolished because it's like concentration camps. So all, all the sort of stuff that people used to talk about. And now it's actually hard to distinguish them from the new flats that are going up. I wondered if through your interviews or by any other means you'd kind of done a comparison of the extent to which people identify as European sort of across the different countries and whether you notice any changes and, and trends in that. Uh, no is the easy answer to that. But I think so just very anecdotally, I think the, the places that think of themselves as most European are those that are now considered to be the sort of difficult maybe anti-EU populist places like Hungary and Poland. I mean, no one thinks they're European as much as the Poles do. I mean, they're utterly committed to this. And, and for them, they, it's almost as sort of like, we are Europe rather than Brussels, or we are Europe rather than like London or Paris or these other cities that are sort of decadent and multicultural mm. and whatnot. Mm. It, it's us, we the people that, you know, that beat the Turks at the Battle of Vienna. It, you know, that's what Europe's about. And that is also what, you, what Europe's about. So that's, it's a sort of good reminder when people do this kind of like, I feel very European, it's like, so does Viktor Orban. Uh, you know, that, that, that Europe always has that other meaning. I think it's only in Britain where the idea that Europe is somewhere else is common. Yeah, um, I'm, I was born in the 80s in, in Sheffield and, and witnessed sort of the death of a, of a socialist dream and, uh, and public space into something more private, and uh, especially within the black community as well, uh, of which I was a part of. Um, but I just wondered if uh, I, I've noticed that there's this sort of re-emergence of the appreciation of 20th, 20th century architecture. And I think Sheffield's a good example that you have Park Hill, where the architecture is being lauded and, uh, and renovated, but the, but the dream of the architecture is being lost. Park Hill is not the same idea as it yeah. once was. And I just wondered if you'd found any places on your, your tour around Europe that had managed to pre preserve a sort of dream of post-war architecture. The place that really comes to mind with that is the Olympic Village in Munich, um, which is basically a, a, a social housing estate built alongside the Olympic Park in the early 1970s. Um, and it's more or less Thamesmude about the lakes. You know, it, it looks incredibly like a sort of an ambitious British estate of the mid-60s. Um, and just the state in which it's kept and the, the you know, all the shops are, st are still open, you know, that... that um, all the buildings are well looked after, people are using their balconies, it's not been sold off. It just works so well, despite being exactly the same thing. It's not better built, it's not, a better, it's not better architecture, it's not better ideas. It's actually, and by and large, 60s architecture in Britain is not better or worse than that of anywhere else in Europe. So it's a good way of sort of seeing there at any rate that those things could be well looked after. Whereas the East European examples, 
the fabric of the buildings was quite well treated, but they've all been privatized. And they've all been privatized in a quite different way in that there was a sort of instant right to buy. Um, and like in Britain, the, you know, the councils, or in many cases just the state, owned the, the site. So owned the fabric of the building and owned the stairwells and owned the space around. But people privatized their flats individually and in many cases were just given them. And if you had one in, you know, in Warsaw or in Moscow, you could then sell it for much less than it was worth to a property developer. So I suppose those have been well treated and the idea is not still there, whereas there's definitely examples in, in Northwestern Europe where the idea is still, still there and, and in a very normal way. You know, people don't walk around the Olympic Village in this kind of like, I am living in a 60s utopia way, <laughs> in the way that they do in Park Hill. You know, and it's kind of like, I have bought into the dream of Park Hill. People in the Olympic Village just live there. And they live there and they buy their pint of milk in the morning. And, you know, it's just normal, which is as it should be. I mean, I guess that's part of the, just the sort of, I mean, really what you're talking about in Britain is it's kind of hyper, it's just hyper capitalism, isn't it? It's just, just that nothing can exist without being reified. Yeah. And then you reify it in order to make more money out of it, yeah. To make a brand out of it, essentially, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, I was just curious. You mentioned earlier, I think, when Lindsay was asking about examples of um, city architecture that are kind of comparable or, or, or worse than Britain outside of London. You mentioned Madrid, and I'm just curious if you could say a bit more about, about why. Um, actually, in terms of its actual housing policies, or in terms of like its housing standards, Madrid's pretty good. It's more that they went really, really speculative... So the suburbs, the kind of new suburbs, which in terms of the quality of the buildings is sometimes quite high, are empty. Um, or full of people with negative equity or full of people in big trouble. And that was a really big disaster. And Spain in general has like huge problems with, with foreclosures and with the kind of after effects of the, of the boom in housing. Um, but partly I was also talking about the fact that, that Madrid is a little bit boring which I think it kind of is. Almost sort of charmingly boring in a way. <laughs> But it doesn't feel like a capital, does it? No, that's the thing, it's yeah. puzzling, really. I, it's not my I quite liked it, actually, but I mm. did find it puzzling. I know what you mean, Barcelona feels more like the capital, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I've not been, but I presume so. Right, right. You've been to all these places, you've not been to Barcelona. <laughs> Typical Owen, that is. Right, um, so I think, uh, I, think, I think that's it. Yeah, we, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.